Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. On today's episode, Ian and I are joined by David Astle. David is a crossword maker for The Age and City Morning Herald, as well as the wordplay columnist with Spectrum. He's the author of a number of books, including Wordburger, a quick snack guide to cryptic crosswords for kids or rookies in general, as well as the time-traveling mind trip called Riddledom. He's a regular on radio as well as on TV, including the SBS show Letters and Numbers, which was discontinued in 2012. In the media section, we chat about Veep, 11-22-63, Inside Man, typecasting for British actors, The Nick, and others. For the topic, we chat about what makes up good prose and the ins and outs of great writing and great writers. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate in contacting me on my email, mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. Today we're at the Brunswick St- Street Bookstore. Wow, that's the first time, Ian. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It always there's a mumble in there somewhere. I you did well. You didn't even get past the first uh, first sentence. Though, it's today. the hay fever. What can oh. I say? You know, I think that uh, Mel. I'm just putting this out there that I think Melbourne, uh, whoever planned for the trees to be planted, was aided by the devil himself. Basically, <laughs> you know, like there was just it was like more trees here, please. <laughs> just to, because. I live. Ne- I'm, I'm driving right in yes, here, but I live absolutely. next to a row of. I don't know what the trees are called with with all the white devil uh, trees. Yeah, devil trees. I live next yeah. to a row of them, and just Satan shrubbery. Yes, Satan <laughs> Satan shrubbery. And when I come out in the morning in North Melbourne, I'm like, oh, so yeah. Now with you. No, I um I walked down Brunswick Street uh, today mm-hmm. on the way to the bookstore, and it felt. Like I was walking into a cloud of pollen. Yeah. You know, my nose was leaking, my eyes were leaking. You know, it yeah. was just it was horrendous. And if you've never experienced Melbourne's springtime, there's the the um the particular type of trees again. I'm forgetting it. They they, uh, they have this little uh, thread which can get stuck at your back of your throat yes. quite easily. So yeah, there's one of experience. You're walking down and you start coughing uncontrollably. Yeah, and have to take a bit of water somewhere. So yeah. It's so fun. so since we're starting this as a complain fest before we you know <laughs> yeah. go on to complain more about other things. <laughs> yeah. Um. The last two weeks, my left ear has been blocked up, right? Right. So every time I exhale, yep. Um, I'm trying to think how this works again. Yeah. Okay. If I inhale, I can't hear out of my left ear. Right. But if I exhale, I can. So <sighs> for the most most of my conversations, my meetings during this week has me being just like breathing <laughs> at the person that I'm meant to be time. convincing. Wow. So uh, not very convincing. That's all right, Joel. Good Turns work. Out, yeah. A week. So that's the. Antibiotics doing its work, so should be good as gold in, uh, for the next podcast. I'm glad. Unfortunately, you. sorry, David. David <laughs> Astle, welcome to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> You're gonna have to endure the breathing, but uh, yeah, no, good, good cross pollination there. Uh, uh, there you uh, go. Woo. And, and I know what you mean there, Ian, with that uh, those mm. trees. I think they are the plane trees. That, uh, they That's just mm. a little kind of uh, fluff balls or mm-hmm. piece of mm. pollen that just catches at the right at the back of the uvula, and you yeah. just cannot speak. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it is. It is lethal. Yep. Well, it could be lethal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if not for that glass of water that uh, some kind stranger gives you. There you go. Yeah. It's true. I it. wonder if they knew. I wonder if whoever was planning knew how it was going to get. I think it's because it's not so much the fact that are a they tree... native like to Melbourne, the Ooh. Melbourne region? No, no, no. I think they are imported trees. Right. I mean, when when Hoddle lay this, um, mm-hmm. you know, 
layout uh, old Bear Brass. He mm-hmm. he fell in love with uh, you know the European look. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's all those kind of square gardens with lots of yep. you know elms and plains and yeah straight. From it is an attractive look, but mm-hmm. not for the yeah <laughs> not yeah. for those people who wish to breathe. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, no fun. So David, how's your week been? Yeah, really good actually. I've been um, delving into uh, when I can escape the trees. Mm. Um, <laughs> I actually have been um, binge watching. I know that uh, was. If not word of the year, then shortlisted for word of the year mm-hmm. about three years ago. Yeah. And I always thought, oh, that's just one of those words, one of those compounds. Yep. We don't really use that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's a bit like shovel ready. Do people really say that? Uh, and then I, I've been binge watching and um, mm. it is uh, The Leftovers. Um, ah. On uh, it, it actually, I think it might be Apple TV. But mm. the reason I was drawn to it, and if you don't know, though, do you, you guys I haven't. I know of, yes. Mm-hmm. Very it's, sad. Very yeah, the premise is that, you know, I think it's about 1% of the population just vanish in yeah. this rapturous, mysterious event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that sounds all a bit uh, sci-fi, which is not necessarily my cup of java. Mm. But the fact that the author was Tom Perotta, who was mm. the guy behind uh, Election and mm. Big Children yep. Uh, yep. and The Chastity Teacher, mm-hmm. I thought... It's got to be worth checking out because he's a very good writer, does sort of New Jersey suburbia very well. Mm. And um, I am glad that I got over my sci-fi snobbery because yeah. it is an absolutely captivating show. Mm. Mm. I've um, I've heard that the show leaves you with a perpetual uh, feeling of just morbidity throughout the entire <laughs> thing. You, you, you know, Earth has no hope and everyone in that show is quite not a great person. It's funny, you know, I think that's why I, I like downbeat <laughs> yeah. music as well. Right, I actually yeah. do thrive mm. in the downbeat story. Yes, mm. um, absolutely. You know, I like a stoner movie. Yep. Um, <laughs> the James Franco movies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like a lot of silence and, yeah. and kind of serious framing. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure enough, when it comes to my music and my um, you know sort of film tastes, um, mm. you know I I think there's a little bit too much felicity and uh, when it uh, and mm. I, that's with a small f yeah yeah uh, <laughs> in the general kind of formatted uh, yep. series yeah mm. what about you guys what have you been um, delving into well Ian let's start with you well, what good. have you been watching James Franco is a great segue because I've um I we so you know when you watch a certain amount of a series and then you just stop and you never come back to it absolutely well we came back to one I don't know why uh, we were like what are we gonna watch uh, this is a good start yeah I know. So, Always an encouraging sign you're really into something. Yeah. So it was. Um, I have to get look at my phone to get the numbers. Eleven twenty eight sixty three. So it's a Stephen, Stephen King, King novel. Yeah. About, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Guy goes back in time to stop the assassination of JFK, and I mean it. It never really. It started well and strongly, and the concept is fantastic. You know that the the past fights back harder the more you closer you get to changing it, which is really neat. But the execution didn't quite work for me. Mm-hmm. So it was a. Yeah, it was a bit interesting. But we went back to kind of finish it, and then I um. Went and dutifully, because I didn't read the novel, I just watched the series, sure. went and dutifully read, as I do, yeah. the, the novel synopsis to see how it differed. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. I wasn't, um, wasn't so sure. So that was probably the, that was the one thing I watched. But the other um, big thing which I've really been enjoying is we finally mm-hmm. got around to watching Veep. Ah, uh, yes, I've never seen it. So oh. I've been meaning for years to watch it. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many uh, you know, sort of uh, Emmys has uh, mm. Louisa Dreyfus won? Yes, so yeah. many, and yeah. and totally deserves. I mean, they, they're swearing a blue streak, and these guys are probably swearing a purple and or <laughs> uh, sailors would be jealous. Yeah. Um, but, man, HBO, I think they just went no hold yep. hard. But, man, it works well, and it's the plot that actually mm-hmm. is, I think, 
really drives it well. They what they do is they deliver an engaging plot. Um, mm-hmm. So I could never get my wife to watch The West Wing, for example. Like she just right. would not do it. Yeah. Just too political. But this she's enjoying because it's it's lighthearted enough and it's engaging. Yep. But it still delivers a really good plot. And essentially each season carries over one plot that moves. It's not like a sitcom. It's sure. not like your standard okay. sitcom. Mm. Something goes wrong, then you try it yeah. again and it works. It's not like that. And uh, I've found it really engaging. And it's it's just getting better. Mm-hmm. And well. obviously very savvy. I yeah, mean, very savvy. And yeah. very on point with what's happening now. Mm. And uh, characters who are just, they jump out of the screen at you, which is fantastic. So, yeah, really enjoying that. And uh, the other thing was I've, I went back and reread a classic over a couple of nights, which was um, C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair. Oh, there you go. I love Narnia. Yeah, yeah, so really good. And, like, I, I was thinking, so, Joel, and I, we, we talked about this, mm. actually. Um, and I was, yeah, really gripped again by that. So, Probably some of the earliest stories that I remember reading were, uh, you know, the Narnia stories. And, um, yeah, I just found it really engaging. And I hadn't read it in a very long time, I think since I was a teenager. So uh, it was just still still really engaging and captivating. In fact, are those guys that Newcastle mm. three-piece, is, is that actually a tribute, Silverchair, is that a tribute to the C.S. Lewis know, book? I don't know, actually. Yeah, oh. it seems awfully coincidental. It does. Yeah, it does. But, however, I just don't know if, um, mm. if that necessarily has ever been stated. I don't um, know, but I, it's certainly. In fact, I've definitely thought it, David. Yeah, but it, yeah, yeah, yeah I've thought it, but I've never actually gone and you know, yeah, hunted, hunted re- that yeah. answer down. Mm. And uh, before we hear from you, Joel, I just, I just have to add to the Narnia yeah. thing. Mm. My theory about Narnia mm. is this: that when, when C.S. Lewis, who is was you know a master at uh, coming up with Absolutely. wonderful names, yeah. you, you think about Morgrim, you know, mm-hmm. the chief of police. What a great name! Yeah. Or Tumnus, you know, yeah. where's that name from? It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, mm. And then. Narnia itself, where's that name from? Mm-hmm. And I have this theory that if you look at mountain range, you know, yeah. which does, okay. of course, evoke, you know, that kind of uh, the, the remote horizon, backwards inside mountain range is Narnia. And I, I, I again, a little bit like my silver chair, you know, yeah. Daniel yeah. John's theory, I don't know if there's any substance to that. Right. <laughs> but I reckon that's one kind of sideways look by C.S. Lewis mm. at mountain range. Suddenly, his Eureka arrived. Well, I mean, the Inklings were certainly quite the bunch. And yeah, mm. yeah especially with company like Tolkien and such. Yeah, around. they I'm sure, sure were. That rubbed that's off. right. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never... I didn't yeah, thought of well, that. Well, hey, you know, it's kind of... And let's not forget Reaper Cheap. I yes. mean, that oh, name yeah. is yes. just inspired. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then Puddle Glum was right there as well. And yeah. I, you, know, you uh-huh. see it and you're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and actually, the thing that struck me, a, a couple of things struck me. One, uh, Joel's description of... Uh, what would you say? A metaphor with C.S. Lewis uses it like a sledgehammer and uh, yes. there, like really effectively. Like, yes, the absolutely. One that, yeah, the one that stood out to me most was in this this world underground is closing over, and he says it was like the uh, I'm going to get this completely wrong, but you know, like the you know six steam trains hitting the end of the line at once at uh, mm. you know a station. And I was like, oh yeah, you can just kind of get that yeah. sense of that. Um, but the other one was just uh, how vivid the character of Puddleglum is. Yeah. Like, you know who he yep. is and how he's going to be for the whole book yep. within, like, two sentences. <laughs> two seconds. Like, well, that's a nice day, but it'll probably go terribly. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, I got it. I got this. Yeah. I know this. That was yeah. brilliant. Everyone so. knows someone like that. <laughs> yes, they do. Everyone's got a friend like yeah. that. Exactly. Um, here's, yeah, throwing the ball back in your court, David. Mm. Um you brought up Narnia, and this is curious to me. Why do yeah. you think he chose the names for the children like he did? Like the very children. English, yeah, they very, are. Um, I, you know, rural, what? maybe. Again, I, I'm full of rich, hairbrained theories, but mm, uh, no. I, let's I actually, go for it. <laughs> I reckon. Let's get it right. It's Susan, Peter, uh, Lucy, Lucy, and what's the third child? A fourth child? Uh, uh, Eustace. 
Is no, it Eustace Eust- is later. Eustace um, is later. Peter, oh my goodness, we're going to forget, aren't we? Yeah. Edmund. Edmund. Edmund, well Thank done. You. Well done. Now, I would hazard a guess that those were four of the most popular names mm. uh, during um, Lewis's uh, writing mm. because I sense as though he had created this every mm. every family. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure they would not have been too far off the radar in sure. terms of their popularity. You know, that he didn't come up with, you know, Nedrick and, and you know, uh, mm. Gallimorph. Yeah. The, the fact that he actually chose pretty much from the um, you know, from the nursery down the road sure. is my theory about mm-hmm. it. Um, and even there was that kind of the Dar, you know, Roald Dahl loves to talk yep. about orphaned children. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and I think if I remember right, this was they had been they were in a displaced um, mm-hmm. you know mansion. It mm. was kind of World comfortable War, place. Yeah. yeah. They were being looked after by yep. a governess. Mm. So again, there's this idea of. Um, a license to be independent mm-hmm. and um, with very common names and, and, you know, let's face it, a wardrobe is, you know, one of the most, you know, common touchstones of, of childhood. Mm. Everything about it was a portal that was highly familiar that led mm-hmm. us into this reversed mountain mm. range sure. that was Narnia. There you go. <laughs> there we are. I like it. Tailing it back in there. Yeah, <laughs> I like that, David. Um, I thought I was good at segues. My yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, yeah, look, I could talk about books I'm reading, but I, I, I yeah. want to hear, we're talking about uh, TV, I guess. Yeah, what, uh, absolutely. Yeah, what TV we, are well, you kind of getting into? I've been really bad about this, David. And, yeah. and people, <laughs> consistent listeners on the show would know that I usually, you know, smuggle a movie in just before the podcast so I would have something to talk about. Okay. Um, but this week, um, I was on a bit of a, I was thinking, okay, I, I had never watched Inside Man, the Denzel Washington oh. Clive Owen film. Fantastic film. It's a fantastic film, mm. and, and, my, and my brother. It's a, it's a bank heist, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Heist. Sorry, it's all about yep. the the perfect heist. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and it's a Spike Lee film, and yeah. uh, and everything that entails. Um, Spike Lee, you mad genius. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is more of his, a little bit more of a commercial. You know, tried to stick to the genre tropes yep. of, of it, mm. but tried to mix it up a little bit. And I will say that the performance Denzel's great in pretty much everything he does, but. There's the the English actor Clive Owen. Now, mm. my goodness, I've talked about this before, but give that man some roles. Yeah. Like he's, yeah, he's, a, he's such a talented well, yeah. actor yep. at playing understated roles to the point where they, he makes them so enigmatic and so captivating to watch. I mean, he plays practically his entire mm. role in a mask. Yeah. And he is, by oh and large, goodness, yeah. the most interesting character of that yeah, yeah. whole movie. Um, Jodie Foster's role was really unusual to me because mm. she sort of was the fixer, you know, like, oh, yeah. I'm a very rich, <laughs> successful person and I fix big problems. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, but how exactly? Yeah. You, know? you don't seem to be fixing much. Yeah, you just live in a very large mm. apartment office slash and then you get called by... Uh, we're in spoiler territory here, so I might as well just... It's an yeah. old film, I mean. Yeah. Um, mm. And... You know the 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 bank, um, mm. the owner of the bank chain had some very dirty secrets in World War Two, um, played by oh, oh uh, from the Von Trapp family. Yes, and, yes, Christopher Plummer. That's Thank the you. one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very spry ninety-eight year old. But yeah. oh, besides man. that, mm. uh, he had some secrets in World War, and he wanted to get it out of the bank before the police get their hands on. Mm. Um, nice twist. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so she he calls Jodie Foster, and so that's meant to be the the sub story, this B story that goes along, and you're trying to see how that plays out. And inevitably, A and B story are mm. intrinsically linked in the end. Um, 
and yeah, it, it's showing a kind of Robin Hood-esque kind of character that you wouldn't have first expected at the start of the story, mm. um, using narration at the start of the story as the device to end the story with. So it's letterboxed very nicely. Yeah. Um, and there, there are definitely like, there's also a lot of very odd Spike Lee-esque moments in the movie, like um, the mm. song Chea Chea is used in the start mm. of the movie, and I was like, what has this got to do with the film in <laughs> <Yeah>. any way? <laughs> and I did some research afterwards, and he was like, yeah, I like the song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Spike. That's you what know? it's got to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Sure, but... Um, in fact, Clive Owen, I, I know that he was mooted for a long time as being the next James Bond, because he yes. does have that you know, uh, charisma yes. and the strength mm. and a little bit of looseness as well yeah. with, with his work. Mm. Um, he was in a an early show called uh, Croupier, I think it was. Uh, it was one of his earlier films. Yes. But I have seen, um, getting back to TV, mm-hmm. uh, it's The Nick, and that's with a K. Yes. Have you seen that? No, but uh, I've, I've, I actually watched, um, I think it was the pilots mm-hmm. of that show, yeah. but no, no, I, I can hardly remember. But it was, again, he was the... Stole the stole. The he show. did steal the show, yeah. uh, and mm. he probably stole quite a few cadavers too. It's just <laughs> bit of a manic character. early prince, yeah. early kind of hospital uh, mm. practices, and um, a lot of it was this um, macabre off-book research center mm-hmm. for how the body works yeah. and and how transplants might work. Uh, it's it's gory, but yeah. if you do like Clive Owen, it's definitely one to yeah. You know, it, down. It's interesting to to look at his um his uh, people were talking about and this is tangential I suppose but mm. in some ways related is that Hollywood likes English villains right that's just yeah, a, they do. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, true. it's a thing yeah. um and Rickman, you know way oh, back man. even though he's impersonating a German in yeah. uh, Die Hard <laughs> but you know <laughs> his voice yeah. it's just it's all there isn't yeah. it yes yeah and yeah. there's something about uh, the Voldemort, uh, you know, dare I say his name, but uh, yeah. just that uh, deep English voice. Yeah. so, you know, sinister. Yeah, yeah. and th- that's interesting because I think that has a lot to do with why a lot of English actors don't get a lot of leading man roles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, uh, that's just, it yeah. seems to be, it is a, it is a, it is a typecast in, in the way that it's it's Unless you're hapless like Hugh Grant. You exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Then you can, you know, you can be in a million romantic comedies <laughs> yeah. and people yeah. will love you for it. Like it you either have to be hapless or completely, you know, kind of uh, yeah. sinister. There, there was this, um, <laughs> there was this uh, interview with James Purefoy, another fantastic um, British actor, mm. and he was talking about um, Hollywood casting different British actors in different roles. He was saying that you know you'd have the upper upper class British mm. strata would get the villain roles. Um, and or depending on the film, you'd have like characters like Ray Winston in movies yeah. which play the lower mm. rung yeah, criminals, the, thug, yeah. the thugs. Yep, yep. Um, and he was saying you would never get Ray Winston playing a re- like leading man heroic role in, yeah, yeah. in Hollywood because it, it's well, it's why that wonderful uh, the I think it's Martin McDonough the um, uh, mm. the board, the guard. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, with um, help me out, Gleason. Mm-hmm. Is it um, what's his first name? Is it uh, Brendan? Brendan mm-hmm. Gleason. Who normally plays, you know, someone quite uh, pernicious, yes. um, but he just he has this amazing weight of character, mm. and that uh, other beautiful one, Calvary. Gosh, that's a good film. Yes, uh, Gleason again. Yep, cast. Uh, you know, Brennan Gleason's a great actor. Just prepossessing. Yeah. Yep. Here we are in a bookstore talking a whole lot about movies. I feel a little guilty, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> it, is the, it is the guilty pleasure section of the okay, podcast. All right, it's all true, right. it's true, actually. And I, I do have to share, I do have one very specific memory uh, for Inside Man, and that's that I took my mother to see it. And I don't know how many people take their mother to see no. a, a film that has the C-bomb in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, but 
I didn't quite realize how strong the language was going to be. My mother is lovely, but probably the language was a touch strong. <laughs> so that was my, my memory sitting there, kind of slinking into my seat a little bit. I'm thinking Anne's mom's reaction would be an, oh gosh, was it? <laughs> she, just, she just didn't say a lot. All right. She was all right. She was very yeah. gracious. It reminds me of taking my 15 year old along to a, uh, a MIF. A uh, bunch mm. of uh, documentary shorts uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and short films as well, yep. mm. and uh, that's always very risky. Yeah, you're yeah. rolling yeah. the dice. How David. risky it was until I saw what was essentially a kind of glory hole movie involving <laughs> yeah. a uh, oh. uh, a paraplegic, and mm. I thought, wow, I I can't back out. This, now. Is, this is happening. Yeah, this is happening, yep. and I am that parent of the year. Not you know? yeah, everyone's sort of looking at you. <laughs> Shame <Yeah>. on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't know what kind of impression that Tess has of you know uh, any any kind of uh, red light district or yeah. you yep. know, but um, I certainly uh, may have scarred her there. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a hell of a segue. Yeah, it's a hell of a segue. Let's move on to the topic section. Sure. Um, and we mentioned Stephen King earlier in yeah. the uh, in the podcast, and it's interesting because I think Stephen King is sort of key to this discussion in a way. Mm. Stephen King is one of those writers that's either loved or hated uh, by very different crowds. Mm. Um, for some consider him a king of plot, and others consider him, you know, uh, the, the Satan of prose. Uh, <laughs> and maybe you marry the two together and you get a compromise of purgatory somewhere in there, but, you know, that depending on who you talk to. But there's the Stephen King elements, but then you have a lot of other authors that sort of fall, mm. you know, somewhere along that scale where people often refer to prose as being a very important feature of their book. Mm. And while the literary side of the discussion is a lot more focused on the prose section, we also have genre writers in this sort of middle ground that's starting to emerge quite more and more mm. um, as we question the ideas of what makes something literary and, uh, mm -hmm. and popular mm. fiction. Um but it's something that uh, I mentioned on the podcast earlier about Harry Potter not being for me because I didn't quite appreciate the book. Um, I didn't. I didn't grow up with Harry Potter. Uh, I grew up with Lewis in, mm -hmm. in that regard, yeah. um, and uh, I had only read Harry Potter for David's benefit. I only read it three months ago, so mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. book. Um, and so you know that was one of those interesting things where you know it got me, and I thought. You know, we, we really need to have a discussion about prose because yeah. a, a lot of this year of the podcast, we've been talking about genres and we've been talking about genre conventions mm -hmm. and we've been talking about what people grow to uh, expect, misconceptions of genres and such. But I just wanted to take a little detour on today's uh, episode mm. and go a little bit nitty gritty. We've got the perfect guest for it. Uh -huh. mm. um, and we thought we'd talk about a prose a little bit. I came across a quote by Stephen mm. King only mm. yesterday, I think it was, sure. and I'm still trying to puzzle over it. Mm -hmm. uh, it said that uh, you write the first draft with the door closed mm. and you write the redraft with the door open. Mm. Uh, I like it. I mm. think it's the, there's a mysterious wisdom in it. Mm. And the, to the best of my speculation, it's about you need that intensity of the private room, yes, mm. you know the the sort of the, the digital detox, no external interruption, to maintain that intent and that velocity. Mm. But then you need a kind of wider, um, a, a wider perspective mm. to understand what it is that you've created mm. and how it might be improved or read or seen from other angles. It's, sure, it's that idea of opening up a little your mind and and the world physically to mm. look at. Mm you know, the first uh, iteration. 
But yeah. it's an interesting. He he does come out with a lot of these um, great, um, you know. It's very quotable. Very quotable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I suppose they're precepts or platitudes mm. um, that mm. often are distilled into something. It's uh, you know about how to the craft of writing. Yes, you know, it's uh, it is really it's a difficult and spooky art. The craft of writing. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I think you know even even delving even deeper in that in that idea of talking about uh, the way it's to be read. Um, let let's start off that discussion. I guess okay. let's let's mm. let's get into it a little bit. Um, and here's a big question, but I guess it's our door into this discussion, and then mm. we'll see the, whether we get lost or whether we get mm-hmm. out of the haunted mansion. Okay, sure. And I feel like I will force us to get lost. Here we go. Yeah, right. here we go. Um, and and I guess mm. the first question I'm thinking of, and it's always plagued me because I, I think writers go through this uh, this meandering journey um, mm-hmm. through their career where they think of something quite. Um, uh, we have a very black and white mm. uh, look at um, this is good writing, this is bad writing, and as we go along, maybe we open ourselves up a bit, and we, you know, mm. we get the gills in, and we we start pulling in a little bit more, and then we think, okay, maybe it's just my perspective, and then you can go one of two ways: one, you can continue having your gills open, or you know, you could also end up taking in enough and then making a decision for yourself and being like, this is good writing and this is bad mm. writing. So I guess let's start there um, and ask the question, is good prose something that we can be objective about um, or is prose just by the way that we as humans digest um, writing and words, uh, is that just always going to be a subjective thing? It is a big question mm. and um, as a former writing teacher and as a um, aficionado of, of writing mm. and the craft of writing... I think you could replace prose with mm. comedy mm. and it makes you realise that while some things are widely funny, they're never going to be universally funny. And I mm. think when it comes to prose, while crafted, active, vivid writing is widely recognised, there are some who may even see it for what it is and not necessarily connect or admire it for, for that. Mm-hmm who may prefer their story to be couched in, in other language from in another register. Mm. So I think the short answer is no. I don't think you can – there is not this sort of universal um, objective uh, paragon of writing. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I do think that there are common threads mm-hmm. to what is widely recognised as fine writing. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm happy to play around with those threads and look at what they are, mm. you know, as, as this chat on mm. evolves. What about you, Ian? What do you, th- what do you think? I think I might just share a bit of a story from when I was a, a kid. It's probably my mm. first contribution. Is uh, I remember I read this book, uh, which is a Star Wars uh, novel, um, which is by Timothy Zahn, and has one of the best plots. And I've, we've talked about, I've talked about it on the podcast mm-hmm. before. Yep. Yeah, they should have just used that for the, the, the three new movies hey, they made. completely different topic. Yeah, so good. <laughs> But um, he he was not like, so I read it and I loved it. And I gave it to my mum. I was fourteen. I said, "Oh, you should read this." And she's like, "Okay." Yeah, mum read read this book, mm-hmm. and she came back to me after and she said, "He's not a very good writer." And I was like, "What?" But the the plot and everything. And then she said to me, "Yeah, but every every second page, someone's lip curls." Mm. And I was like, "Oh, 
I hadn't noticed it. And I think that uh, there's something which is learned uh, about writing. Like It isn't something that you can spot necessarily immediately. I wonder whether it's a bit of a curse in some ways to get to a certain point where you notice this stuff. Yes, because yeah. if I'd been gloriously unaware for my entire reading life, maybe it's impossible to be gloriously unaware. I may never have noticed repetition mm. in writing it quite that way. It probably was the fact that I was 14 and I wasn't noticing that stuff at the time. Yeah. But yeah, it, do- it does make me think, you know, uh, is, there, is there a bit of a curse in understanding too much, knowing too much? It's funny that uh, how your mum could see, you know, this, um, you know, repetition. Mm. Uh, and in fact, there was a, a book, an incredible book that I read earlier this mm. year, mm. Um, a guy called Ben Blatt, B-L-A-T-T, and it's called Nabokov's Favourite Word yeah. is Mauve. I don't know if you've come across that book. Mm. Okay. But he's a guy that, um, he's uh, a, a absolute, he's a data journalist, is right. uh, his job title, and he applies metrics to the most unlikely uh, areas. It might be about the metrics of uh, of menus, mm. uh, the metrics of uh, you know uh, air- airport traffic, and in his last book it's about the metrics of literature, right. sure. and looks at what words have been repeated. Uh, by what writers you know uh-huh. I, I can tell you that uh, you know Zadie Smith's favorite phrase is evil eye mm. or that uh, no surprise um, you know J.R. Tolkien's favorite mm-hmm. words are elves goblins and and you know mm. uh, wizards so that yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to un- unpacking yeah. dismantling prose it can mm. it can the tricks can start to reveal themselves mm. and um, mm. the, an author's uh, mannerisms and, and uh, twitches sure uh, mm. But when it's kind of recomposed, I think the sorcery is, uh, you know, is reinstated. And, and sometimes to analyse prose too forensically mm. can, um, can kind of undo that, uh, the magic that uh, it possesses. Sure. Um, it was interesting. Again, I'm going off Ian's point here. And the, one of the stories I have when I was younger ah. was I went, um, so there was this one of these uh, markets where I lived uh, when I was quite young. Um, and you'd get these books that would have a black mark on the on the spine, oh, yeah. uh-huh. being the the leftovers of yeah. whatever Discount, stock. Yeah. Um, so that would get you know given to these bookshops, um, and they would sell it you know more than half the price cheaper, and that was really good for for pocket money. Yeah. Um, so that was all where it all went. Sorry, mm. mum and dad. Um, <laughs> but the could have been a lot worse. It, it could have yeah. been a lot worse. There's a lot worse things to do with your life. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was a very dull uh, child. Um, so yeah, my my. Uh, is this your cover story? In yeah. fact, I don't mean that. Yeah. <laughs> what Seems really very spend? clean cut, what, Joel. Don't yeah. You what did you really spend it on? <laughs> That's from the after podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I went into this bookshop. Um, and I had, I was reading, and, and this will sound incredibly pretentious, uh, <laughs> but I was reading uh, The Count of Monte Cristo. Wow. Um, and right. as a kid... You choose your own adventure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I mean, that's the natural stage for a kid to develop. Um, and then I went into the bookshop, and I had a really good relationship with... Uh, you dealer with my dealer. <laughs> I can see that there's a lot of code words going on. Yeah. Here. You get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but and she would often recommend you know mm. books to follow on, and so I and this is one of those things of uh, a breakdown in communication. Uh, and for the most part, after this point, she she understood exactly what I like to read. Uh, but I I said, oh, I really like this book. Um, and yes, we use the word ma'am. And then she mm. she said, well. You know, how about you try this one? And then mm. she gave me this book, 
and it had like this really naughty like for adults only at the back and I was oh. like oh <laughs> all right then let's, let's get started uh, so I bought the book um, and it was a book um, that was set in World War Two and it was for young adults um, mm. I guess they didn't have a genre or like an age group that we could say is YA yeah, yeah. I guess what it is yeah, yeah. Uh, tell what it is um, but I started reading it and short sentences short sharp sentences mm. uh which which kept the the plot running along but there was yeah it was in that yeah. way very ah. much like <laughs> i was about to say well what yeah um to heaven anyway. to hold or to, no, no it it see this is one of those things is i cannot remember the author it, uh, he wasn't oh, okay. a well-known author okay. it's very much mm, sure, uh, an sure. american pop uh you know mm-hmm. war story writer yep. um so mm. nobody of uh i, won't, I don't want to say nobody of note um <laughs> but uh not someone that you know i would yeah. be able to pick up today uh, but anyway, I read it and it was short. It, w- it didn't have the magic that. Mm. And, and there's a thing when I yeah. talk to people about the Count of Monte Cristo is that they always come back to me and say, "You like purple prose?" Mm. And I'm like, "No, no, no. I, I like prose that has a kind of rhythm in life and mm-hmm. and yeah. is um, uh, in, in some ways that we appreciate music. I can look at that and be like, that was a great paragraph, right? Yeah. Um, in this book, the plot was very clearly." the central focus of mm. the author. Mm. So I think very early on, I, I came to have a very dogmatic um, mm. view of this is good prose, this is, this is not good And prose. just to you know, play apothecary here, Absolutely. Are, are you, have you been um, smitten by books now that generally are uh, kind of plot-focused or, or plot-driven? So that's a really good question. I think... Um, one of uh, my main focus is on genre fiction and mm-hmm. today, and I write it as well. And one of the books that captivated me, not just in the writing, but plot heavily was China Mevel's um, Pedido Street Station. I haven't read that one. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's got the city and the city and the and city and the city is the book I read. I just yes. thought that was complete, you know, head trip. And exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Pedido Street Station is no different. Mm-hmm. I think those are considered to be his best, uh, yeah. best works. Uh, City and City is being um, made into a show as well. Oh, well. Um, I don't know how they're going to do that. Uh, but, yeah, that that was my example mm-hmm. of... of yeah. uh, I guess it's... Uh, I mean, The Count of Monte Cristo, I only know that as a plot. It's a very... It's an yeah. exquisite idea. It's yeah. a smart idea. Oh, and it's yeah. a rollicking yarn. Mm. And and Mieville has that... Um, you know, he, he has... They're, they're kind of idea-rich plots. Yes. Uh, sounds like that's kind of, for you, there's that kind of cerebral reward yeah. of a plot that's kind of intellectual but also has a strong kind of yes. narrative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, um, I, that, that point you made at the outset about, you know, how our taste changes as, as mm. readers, it's, uh, I think about what novels I enjoyed uh, in my early mm. 20s and, um, in fact, I mentioned uh, Nabokov or Nabokov. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He certainly, I loved his his trickery, yeah. but in a way that trickery is something I'm less drawn to now. Right. I think I just enjoyed the fact that someone who had this massive um, polylingual take sure. on yeah. on language uh, could just dazzle me with, uh, yeah. you know, their, their you know, bravura. Yeah. Mm. But part of me now, sort of reading, I kind of almost want to escape, yeah. you know, this uh, mm. absolute fun box that was <laughs> Nabokov's head. Yeah. Because mm. in a way, and this is by no means, you know, trying to borrow from, from you know, from the greats, I feel as though that's my head anyway, and I yes. don't really yeah. need to yeah. kind of yeah. compound it. Yep. So I've drifted from more the, um, uh, the sort of poly, uh, the pyrotechnic writers mm. into people who are 
kind of a little cleaner in their pros. Mm. Um, I Paul Oster comes to mind. Yeah. He still has that beautiful trickery and sleight mm. of hand to his uh, prose. A lot of mm. charm in his writing. But there's also a an absolute limpid um, uh, kind of purity of of sentence in mm. his work. Um, and Julian Barnes, you know, and uh, uh, and in fact, I've covered come across another writer, uh, Rebecca Solnit, who I've been really enjoying too. It's just really clean pl- prose writers who can mm. go to very deep and strange places, mm. but mm. I, I'm kind of less um, enamoured of the kind of yeah the kind of super rich chocolate torts yeah. that uh, yeah. Nabokov would cook up. Absolutely, and I just I, I don't want to harp on what you're the words you're saying here, mm. uh, David, but I think it's important because you know to wrap my head around it as well as to clear mm-hmm. this up for the audience. When we use words like clean prose, like yeah. what, what do you think that means for you? Well, it's that uh, that wonderful maxim from Elmore Leonard, if it sounds like writing, rewrite it. And I think that's a really good um, uh, truth to apply to yeah. prose. Yeah. That I, um, you know, I know that when I was first starting to write, I was proving that uh, Roger's was at my elbow. Mm. I was using <laughs> words like abstruse and recondite because I knew what they meant. Yeah. Mm. Um, when really I should have just said, you know, uh, strange or weird mm-hmm. or, or whatever it may have been, mm. depending on what effect I was after. Yeah. And I think when I say clean prose, every word, in the same way that, a, to me, a crossword clue, every word has a role to play. Mm. Um, there's nothing redundant. There's nothing um, that's kind of trying to be purple or trying to be, um, sure. you know, mm. sort of proclaiming its mm-hmm. its place. Mm. Uh that is, and also there's a, um, and I think Tom Perotta actually, I mentioned him earlier with uh, the leftovers. Mm-hmm. He writes clean prose, and the story pivots, shimmers, moves. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, deference to plot uh, and grace notes of character really important. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because I've uh, just recently done the journey. And I, don't, I can't remember if I mentioned on the last podcast, but I just read my first Agatha Christie novel, uh, which is kind of weird considering I write mysteries. But actually, oh, by the um, way, her yep. favourite words. Uh, alibi. Yep. Um, frightful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, and there was one more, and it's to do with crime. I think it may have, it may have been murder, but uh, murder, alibi, and frightful. You'd, Sorry, you'd imagine yeah. murder would be up yeah. there. Frightful yeah. was her third favorite word. Wow. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to read that book. Frightful. Uh, yeah. So, but that to me, like, I I think I texted Joel when I was reading. I was like, this is so clean because I had come off reading, you know, some some stuff that was a bit more dense, but that just sums it up for me because she. And you talk about the Grace Notes character, absolutely. And the way that she can just uh, give you a little bit of an insight into Poirot's mind. or And you know, obviously it's not deep characterization that's sure. happening. But yeah. she does what is necessary to move the, the plot along. And she yeah. does it so well. So for me, I was reading Murder on the Orange Express because I thought to go for something that wasn't a cliche to read by <laughs> the Christie. And I wanted to get in before the movie comes out. Uh, and yeah, I just, I loved it. I loved the plot yeah. twist. But I, the thing is, I loved the, the plot. But, I, but the way she delivered that plot mm. was seamless and clean and just so easy to race through that it was it was a joy. Actually she's she's a fascinating study is mm. the dame because mm. it is in that book by Ben Blatt that I mentioned uh, and it's, it was something that I was aware of mm. that in her latter novels and I'm talking about the last two or three of her yep. career uh, there was um, a lot of uh, repetition uh, a lot of uh, she'd lost that uh, mm. nimbleness of prose mm. and in fact she was suffering a form of dementia oh, and nice. it's it's her novels from her earlier ones where she was so clear and so uh, kind of agile and and, uh, lucid, Mm. they have measured that 
uh, with her latter works, you know, the last three or four it was, let's say mm. that, where she just almost um, uh, had this um, uh, like a kind of parroting mm, and yeah. uh, her, she just became trapped in her own limited language. Mm. Her vocab was shredded. Mm. Um, her plots were uh, threadbare. There were there were kind of inconsistencies in storyline. Yeah. And it's she's become almost like a, um, a test case, sure. uh, an inadvertent test case yeah. about how language clarity and language competency mm. um, or, the, or the lack of it yeah. can be a, an indicator of, uh, of dementia. Interesting. I, I wonder if that was the same as well for another uh, well-known author who's you know, suffered from dementia um, quite famously was Terry Pratchett. Mm. And I mean, yeah. I, I wonder if if he uh, he commented that by, I know he worked with, um, yeah. know, I can't remember the gentleman's name that he worked with uh, towards the end of his career, but yeah, it, it was his his control over language. And I think you, you talk about comedy earlier, David, absolutely true. Like mm. uh, I, I think about Agatha Christie and I think about Discworld, two books that I've read, you know, two, two novels this year. And I, I would not say that either one of them was better or worse, but I, w- I would ag- say that both of them were fantastic in the way they were written. And for um, you know, for uh, for Pratchett, it was just some of the, some of the words that he used were just he could get comedy out in a, in a heartbeat, and you're laughing out loud, or you're, you're at least chuckling, and that was fantastic, you know. But it wasn't it wasn't as clean as uh, Agatha Christie, but boy, it was still fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And talking about clean prose and going off that idea. Um, <laughs> I guess it's curious because I hear a lot of people, uh, a lot of friends and academics say the idea is that Hemingway is very responsible for the way that prose developed, yeah, um, both is. in American uh, literature. Influential and, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And his idea of, uh, you know, cutting out redundancies in, mm-hmm. in his idea. Um, and then there's, there's the more negative spin on that, which is the idea that by doing so militantly, I suppose, uh-huh. and especially the people who imitated his style and... Um, you know, propagated that, I guess the idea is that have we cut out words that aren't even redundant but are necessary to give, mm. you know, breath and life to longer sentences, you know. When there's the, um, when there's this uh, student who comes up and says, you know, my, my, my teacher doesn't want me to write, uh, you know, more than 20 words in a sentence, you know, mm. and, and these sorts of things. Like, what, what do you think that, what do you think that will... Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I, is that eroding? Um yeah, there's a there's an expression in in writing called the cup of tea moment, which is about um, there should be um, moments and episodes within your work, particularly a longer work, mm. where it's not necessarily uh, attending dutifully to the story's you know every last uh, demand. Mm. Sure, that there's a kind of a, a pause from the helter skelter of the mm-hmm. plot. Mm-hmm. But if you know your plot very well and you know your characters very well and your theme very well, mm. then I think those so-called redundancies, whether it's a scene that seems a little mm. bit um, you know, extraneous mm. or whether it's a sentence that seems a little more upholstered than the average, it's entirely justifiable if it actually enriches and adds yeah. to your yeah. impression yep. of yeah. those other elements. So I think it um, shows a, a deep familiarity with your work as a writer mm. that allows you those areas of, of and those moments where you can possibly stray from the you know from the turnpike uh yeah. so long as it's imbuing and enriching you know that sort of the central elements of the of the story i think that's the proviso yeah if what if you're wandering off because you're lost and if you're wandering off because yeah. you want to sort mm. of show off or you're distracted yeah. Yeah. absolutely it's very different yeah. um and you, you can ultimately do yeah. need to serve the story um yeah. and the characters within that story 
so with that, with that kind of as your um, you know the uh, understanding, then I think you should not you should leave that Hemingway you know kind of mantra aside mm. um, and be um, and, and trust trust uh, your work trust the you know mm. the characters. Mm. Yeah, I actually uh, use this. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Hemingway app, but there's an app uh, called Hemingway, which is quite a fascinating study. Mm. Yeah. Why didn't um, they call it Papa? (laughs) Well, you know, they just wanted to go with. Yeah. Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a very good point. Um, Clearly, they needed you on the marketing team. Mm. Yes. So they they um. But what it does is it highlights in different colors uh, where you've used extraneous words, Mm. sentence length, and that kind of thing. And uh, it was it was quite good for me when I was starting out. When I was starting out, man, I, I, I needed it, I think, because it, it, I put plug in things and it just came up with these sentences are really long and it kind of highlighted things I couldn't see for myself. But then I went back a couple of years later mm. and I tried using it again when I'd you know, written several hundred thousand words later, you come back and do this. And uh, it surprised me how I'd look at it and I'd actually disagree. I would disagree with things that yeah. this was because it's using an algorithm to figure things out and use less than, you know, for this many words, less than 12 adverbs, less than this. It seems you know. like that bloody Microsoft paperclip. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's it the does. last thing I'm I would want anywhere near right my now. prose. Yeah. I would say it's good for someone starting out. Yeah, and it, yeah. it was invaluable for me starting out. It, it opened my eyes to something I couldn't see. So th- this is me just, I, I could feel my blood, you know, getting <laughs> yeah. up here. Yeah, um, good. I uh, Makes for good radio. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's just that I think that's. Awful! I yeah. think that's garbage. I, the the well, fact that there's tell us what you really think. The, <laughs> I, the, the funny thing is, mm. Ian, is that I've heard about this, mm. um, and the the most ridiculous thing about this program is they put Hemingway's work in the Hemingway program. I know, and yeah. his his work came up as just okay. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I burst out laughing. Yeah, well, that says enough, doesn't it? In, in the way that yes. And it, it's true. I'm sure it does help. But in mm. some ways, you have the foresight and the self-awareness to move on. But unfortunately, I think when people see things that are... It's a bit of a comfort blank. You know, you, mm. you have this thing that is used as like... People love absolutes. And people love the idea yeah. that when you have an authority figure telling you that right or wrong, oh, it, you know, oh, in a, we just feel like, yeah, that's easy. You know, that, that's great. But that's like... It's like, you know, asking Siri to... Yes. Yeah. Tell us, tell us whether this is a you know a beautiful sonnet. Yeah, you know, like get out, of, get out of my you know, get out of my lyrics. You know, you've got no place to be there. Uh, I just no. I, I, look, I understand that what mm. you're saying is yep. about what it, I suppose. What it does do is it allows the um, the semblance of of another. Yes, looking yeah. at your work. But I think that's something that you develop as a writer yep. is you become that other uh, that you yeah. can. You know, look at something after after a, a distance, after a time, and mm. see uh, and see something as if a reader rather than the writer. Yeah, and I think that the the difference between is I can book in that by saying when I when I engaged an editor a couple of years later, that was what I needed. I needed another human to come in and yeah. say stylistically, here you go, and and come up with those turns of phrase. Um, I was wondering though as well, uh, Dave, is there a particular writer you'd say who has broken some rules, but you you still really love it, or is really um, that you'd say is kind of a, a great example? of turning things on its, on its head yeah i do actually i like i like books that um defy uh, mm. genre they're yep, my they're sure. my favorite books at the moment and mm. um I, I i'm joining the club with um jeff dyer who mm. at times is a little bit um indulgent and to his uh, his work if you don't know his stuff um you know he wrote a kind of more conventional novel called paris trance sure. it's probably the one that i enjoyed least mm. i do like his books that actually don't answer to any particular uh label 
Mm. And there was one called uh, Out of Sheer Rage, Mm -hmm. which is a, it's kind of like an anti-biography of D.H. Lawrence. Mm. And I would say, well, that's kind of breaking the rules. You're not, you can't sit down and pretend that you're not writing about D.H. Lawrence when Mm. you're saying that you're going to do that. And then you get bored with your own book and you kind of leave it. But in the end, you're still, you're still writing about D.H. Lawrence by using all his quotes and all his letters uh, and the phrases through your own bitching and moaning. Yeah. I thinking, what have you committed? This this is kind of like a some sort of literary crime that I find compelling, <laughs> right? Because ultimately, and it's this, yeah. yeah, and you know, they talk about the the grammar police. It's kind mm. of like, well, I'm I, I'm much more interested in you know the kind of the grammar felons, yeah, uh, okay. because I'm not. Uh, yeah, despite being an absolute uh, you know philologist and mm. uh, verbivore. Mm. I'm not necessarily as uh, persnickety about grammar yeah. as a lot of people presume. Yeah. I think if it's doing interesting things, uh, and and it's again, it is uh, ab- abiding by the story, and mm. the story's kind of power and needs. Mm. Uh, yeah, bust it all you like. Mm. You know, yeah. say words like bust, mm. uh, or or break the genre. Yeah, crack the wall, and uh, mm. uh, yeah. So that's that would I suppose people who kind of don't fit into neat genre mm. cardigans. I really it really excite me. Yeah. Mm. What about uh, what about you guys? Have you got uh, any writer that you like as a little bit of a you know uh, uh, a kind of rule breaker or a solacist? I that's an interesting one because I'm as traditional as mm. you can come, David. Yeah. Like I'm I'm very much in that in that boring category. But I think one of those writers that I didn't think that I'd enjoy um, was William Burroughs. Uh, mm-hmm. Naked Lunch, yeah. which a lot of people told me was like, Joel, you're going to hate this book. <laughs> you will hate this book. <laughs> and the the strangeness of that. And famously, I didn't finish the last chapter. <laughs> and uh, I'm happy to say that. But my goodness, it makes you think about language and the way you use it yeah. very differently. So that would be my, my example. Well, in fact, sure. he was mm. uh, you know the great sort of dataist of his day in the same way that... Um, Mm. David Bowie was yes, uh, yeah. using the Verbisizer, which mm. was this kind of software that was all the rage mm. in the late 90s. And uh, I would think if you said to me that, oh, you just throw a whole lot of headlines and uh, uh, into this kind of um, vitamizer mm. or, verb- you know, Verbisizer, uh, and then let that be the, the kind of uh, hinges of your, of your, pop, your pop song, mm. I would say, what a wank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know... Yeah. When uh, when Bowie clocked out last year, uh, mm. so many of the songs that I kind of had to relive and listen mm. to, you know, things like Panic in Detroit and, uh, you know, his later work like, um, you know, sort of um, even even as, you know, kind of um, avant-garde as uh, Logic. A lot of them were just feeding off these random lines, but he just created his own kind of, you know, um, mm. Kevorka. Mm. Mm. Uh, so... There you go, a rule breaker, but I absolutely, you know, adored the guy as a, as a wordsmith. Mm. Um, uh. Just wrapping off that as well, I have to say, uh, I, if I was to pick some someone who works with words, and I have I have so much time for lyricists and uh, and great lyrics and music. That's what drives me with music mm-hmm. um, outside of melody and stuff. Um, Falling up are my favorite band, and they inspired most of the fictional world that I've written. And was, came from one song with them, the little robot, and it kind of grew from there. Um, but they choose words not based necessarily on them working in the song too well, but you know, a famous song with. Ben 
burying all of burying all of the evidence because it works with the rhythm they're using. And so sometimes there are words in there that just don't quite work. I don't know why polyrhythmic jumps up in the middle of this song, but there it is. Let's go for it. And yeah. um, that'd be an example of, for me, someone who loves really good lyrics, really well-crafted, clever um, lyrics that make me laugh or cry or really deepen their meaning. And in the middle of it, my absolute favorite lyricist is in this band that just doesn't necessarily make sense, but chooses words to fit uh, with the, the mood and the moment of the song. Sure. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I, I remember seeing the, the machine uh, and, and at the David Bowie ex- yeah. exhibit they had here. And that was, I was just like, wow, how can you actually do that? Like watching these, these sentences come up on it. But yeah, I, I think um, for me, that's probably someone who's outside of what I'd call uh, regulation when it comes to constructing sentences. <laughs> yeah. But I still love it. Yeah. Yeah, and playing off that, I think we come to the final point that I wanted to talk about, which was people always use the the word rhythm in sentences. Mm. Uh, and a lot of writers and pe- writers writing about craft, there are enough. There are a lot of books out there, and there are a lot, there's probably more books about the writing of books um, in that respect. <laughs> um, books, yeah. yeah, with writing in them. Yeah, and there's probably a few podcasts talking about craft writing too. <laughs> Odd, weird. Um, Who do that? Um, but when we talk about rhythm, I guess, um, what what do you think that means? What do you think having a great rhythm mm. in your sentences? And often people break that down to a sentence by sentence. They, they, uh, last like? night I saw uh, at the pop-up globe uh, Henry mm. V. Mm, and yeah. um, just to swim in that uh, wonderful St. Crispin's Day uh, mm. speech yes. from, uh, f- from Harry was to basically breathe with Shakespeare because he did write um, uh, in iambic pentameter, mm, mm. Uh, and so it has that kind of uh, uh, it. It writes as we breathe, mm. and the actors who you know were sublime last mm. night. Uh, they were not delivering a speech; they were just breathing the speech. It mm. was just there to be breathed, um, and uh, so I think. It's an interesting question when you think about the writing on the page. Are you actually saying it aloud? Mm. Um, I think there is this kind of um, inaudible voice in in a writer's uh, brain that is actually saying the words mm. and looking for just that right, just that right cadence, that right mm. fall, mm. or the you know an assonance uh, that might just in resonate or give it something a little bit more weight mm. uh so yeah i think that's what rhythm to me is it's sure. um i i think it's really important that there is this kind of uh, uh tempo that matches the story mm. um and sometimes it can be uh is it t corrigerson boyle who writes he's a prolific writer it's a lot of mm. short stories he was once talking about uh it was this it was this crazy story about um you know these sort of weekend hijinks of these youths up at a lake who were um, kind of ransacking cars. And Mm. I just don't know why I remember this story, but Mm. there was something about his sentences that were really well uh, sculpted Mm. to a point that he knew that the sentence would be more powerful and a little funnier if he said that um, he pinched the tyre, he he ensured the tyre was at regulation pressure. Mm. And I just, I don't know why... I bring this up at all, to be mm-hmm. honest. But I do. You know, there's this kind of voodoo sense that you have as a writer mm. that a sentence is stronger or funnier or kind of more haunting mm. just by the way that you get the rhythm and the, the word selection right. Mm. Um, and it's 
that's what I said at the outset of this discussion. There is something very spooky about writing mm. um, that you cannot just you know label and put in a bottle. Um, but it's about that one of the one of the sort of ineffables mm. is that inner voice of the writer, and that's about rhythm and cadence. Yeah. Um, Ian, when when we think about rhythm, what mm. pops into your head in terms of a writer or a piece of writing that really stuck with you or that uh, you thought was beating to a tempo that you sort of just, you know, clued in on? Yeah, I mean, I can think of tempos that I haven't necessarily clued in mm. on. There are sometimes when, when the words feel like they kind of blow out and I think about reading uh, some of the, the later um, George R. R. Martin novels got fairly weighty under their own... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Weighty under their own weight. That's really <laughs> verbose of me. Anyway, <laughs> they were quite weighty. Yeah. Um, you know, but then I, I think reading uh, some of the some of the Agatha Christie stuff has really mm. really stuck with me. Uh, what I, what I just read, um, but also one thing I really enjoyed was Lord of the Rings. And I think about probably it's probably the first time I became aware of really good pacing was yes. the Bridge of Khazad Doom. Yeah, is pronounced that way. Yep, uh, in uh, mm-hmm. the first book, and where I just and it's uh, Doom Doom when the when the drums in the deep, and the way that you. Your, and I've found this is matched when I've written fast-paced scenes. I've found the way that I write often matches the speed that yes. I read. And I've found that uh, you kind of just you just go for it. And I remember reading The Bridge of Casadum, and I could not put my finger on what it was about that, but it just went. You had this amazingly slow build-up, and then when he got into that that one passage, his the writing that, it, that had been coming just coalesced into this yeah. fantastic moment, which just absolutely, you ran with the characters. So it's it's really interesting that because I was I was just in the process of structurally editing uh, a manuscript the other day. It was mm. a, it's fantasy, mm-hmm. um, yep. and it 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 was really interesting because there was some it's a fantastic uh, um, piece of writing, but there were some issues in terms of the transitions between. Uh, so there's the tempo to to stories, and we have this ebb and flow, and in, in just not even in the prose, but just the way the plot flows naturally. Um, and mm. there are moments of high tension, and moments where you know characters are in you know the heat of the moment. It's action, whether it's a chase sequence or mm-hmm. a fight mm. or anything that involves some sort of violent um, action or emotion. And there were some things that I would pick up on. And it was curious because often the what a reader will pick up on, what a structural editor will pick up mm. on are very different things. It's true. Um, yep. But the things that I noticed was that sometimes I would feel like there was an interlude in an action scene that would just, you know, pull me out of it. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, preparing for this podcast, thinking about it, it was very interesting doing this manuscript at the same time because I could see the... I could see the the breaks where tempo should be, and for the mm. most part, he handled it beautifully. But mm. then there were just some moments where he would put a word in, or, or put a scene, or a, a segue, or a, a, a micro flashback, yeah. which would just take me out of the action. There's a, um, a an adage that uh, I, I gained out of uh, playwriting, mm. you know, mm. and that is that uh, the play should uh, the audience should never get ahead of the play. Mm. And um, I think if you are being too uh, clever in your prose mm. or ba- maybe even being too distracted yeah, in absolutely. you know your own kind of riffs, riffs and tempos that the audience is you know the reader is almost getting ahead of yeah. ahead of the action or is getting kind of bored that the action yep. has stalled yep mm. so you know absolutely. i think i think that is also a real secret to tempo writing is knowing that the plot um, can skitter shimmer stretch 
in, in kind of surprising ways. So, so everything just feels as though it's trying to catch up with where the story's going. I think that's a, that's a kind of key to, to rhythm as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think my example, um, closing out uh, for a story that had a kind of tempo, or rather a writer that didn't have tempo yeah. and then sort of grew on into his own tempo, was uh, H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. um, yeah. a classic purple prosist. He was. <laughs> um, he was. In his initial work, and I wrote an article about this on my website, about how I saw um, Lovecraft's style uh, match his philosophy, and as his philosophy evolved, his his style evolved too. And the like, if you just two quick examples, um, I don't want to hop on something I've already <laughs> written, um, but Dagon, one of the first uh, stories that, well, I think it was one of the first stories in publication that he wrote. Um, in comparison to something at the later half of his career and say at the Mountains of Madness, which Ian has been... Yeah. Joel's been, been bugging me for months to read. Yes, I know just, I've got to do it. No, I, read, I read quite a lot of Lovecraft when I was yeah, growing up too. Yeah, love, love the macabre. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Fantastic. Mm. And, and you can sort of see a shift, right? Yeah. His um, use mm. of description is a key example. Like Dagon, when he describes the indescribable, he just doesn't describe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He legitimately just says it was indescribable. You know, the, uh, this, it's um, a great get out of jail word. Yeah. Mic yeah. drop. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> guys, I can't describe yeah. it. That's Deal just end of the story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he would use words like eldritch, horror. He loved eldritch. He loved yeah. eldritch. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it a great, great Lovecraft word. Um, but in the month. Anchorthonic. Yes. <laughs> oh, bringing me back. Yeah. Um, and then you have it in the Mountains of Madness simply because he's looking at a different narrator mm. who is sort of, um, when he's describing these monsters, he goes into minuscule detail. Uh-huh. And I think at the Mountains of Madness is one of those turning points in his writing where he found his rhythm. Mm-hmm. Right? It was, he described just enough to keep you at the edge of your seat, yeah. at the edge of the page, r- really, and just turning through it. Mm. Um, and I'm sure if, you, if a lot of modern science fiction readers go back, the reason why I harp on one of them, Ian, mm. is to read The Mounds of Madness <laughs> is because it's it's so easy to see the influences that he's had in, in mm. so many genres. But it's also curious to see, like I said, the rhythm that he eventually found later in his career. And yeah, I, that's right. I don't it's think a- that's something that you can always start with, right? Um, it's something that you improve and it is better. interesting, isn't it, to read a, an author through their yeah. you know, their canon, you know, mm. just to see them basically grow up on the page and yeah, yeah. I, I, one of my favourite books of this year was Ian McGuire's uh, The North Water. Mm. Uh, I thought it was just superb writing, great plot, you yeah, know, really. Uh, I went to read his uh, first book and didn't enjoy it nearly as much. Yeah. It was a kind of campus novel yep. and it was all a little bit turgid and uh, yeah. it kind of caught up with itself. Still a good book, but nowhere near mm. as compelling as, uh, as North Water. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. This mm. has been a pretty good episode, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you have enjoyed your time with it. I certainly have. Mm. Yeah, uh, thank you, David. A, been for, a pleasure for, for, talking mm. with you guys. Coming on. Yes, it's been fantastic. So, David, tell us what you've got coming up. Where can uh, people find you? Sure. Uh, well, Geelong uh, Festival, in fact, just around the corner is at... Um, uh, Ballarat is having its Maiden Literary Festival, which mm-hmm. is uh, weekend after next. I think that's going to be translating as something like the 20th. I don't have a calendar in mm-hmm. front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Then I've got um, Geelong Word for Word Festival, which is uh, in early November. That should mm-hmm. be a lot of fun. Peter Carey is uh, going to be the, the keynote mm-hmm. speaker, which is exciting. Um, and uh, then doing a whole lot of, um, well, people won't be able to, you know, <laughs> 
catch up with this, but I'm doing a whole lot of Western Sydney schools and libraries, uh, mm-hmm. kind of going on this rock and roll tour with a whole lot of other writers, so Ursula, uh, Ursula Dubarowski, mm, uh, right. Tristan Banks, which should be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a new book out. I don't know if that's the moment to say, but, uh, mm, you know, Gargantuan is uh, yep. it's my second um, sortie into uh, kids writing. Mm. And um, I think because I do have a, um, you know, a very large 12-year-old boy inside my head, maybe... <laughs> Maybe he's more like eight. Uh, writing for kids, I, f- I have found um, absolute joy. Mm. And uh, this is a book that's sort of, you know, if you've got that whip-smart, wordy kid in your life and it's, uh, it's got quizzes and puzzles and riddles and, you know, kind of weird, uh, you know, offshoots of where language can go, word mm. stories, gargantuan book of words is that, is that word. Uh, is that book, I should say. Mm. Fantastic. Ian, where can people find you? What have you got coming up? Yeah, so um, I'm continuing work on my next novella. Uh, you can keep an eye on my social media at IH Laking on Twitter. Um, and there'll be a cover reveal coming up uh, for the uh, new book, which is kind of crazy. Exciting. Um, yeah, we're still- I saw your yeah, I saw your book on the top sell, um, uh, top downloads. Yeah, that was kind of crazy. Uh, so yeah. uh, I, had, I had a giveaway at the weekend. And we got into the top 100 on Amazon, which was a little oh, bit... Oh, wow. That was a very surreal moment, so... <laughs> I was going to say that was a very strange moment. So yeah, yeah that was that was pretty cool. So um, uh, and I had a proud moment where I was outselling Lemony Snicket for just one moment. So I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Oh, wow. Lemony Snicket. There's no one else we could talk about for a while. There you go. That's true. What about you, Joel? What do you got? Well, as for me, I'm doing absolutely nothing that I can talk <laughs> about. But um, we will be able to talk about some exciting things coming mm. to uh, the literary circuit here in Australia. Um, that we hope to announce by the end of the year. Yep. Um, as for the Morning Bell, you can find themorningbell.com.au. Uh, you can find our previous podcast archives. We had a fantastic conversation with Siobhan Plozo. Um, very uh, interesting and super exciting YA author that you should pay attention to. So we have a fantastic conversation. You can have a listen to that. Um, and as for me, I wrote an article about fences that I keep banging on about. Mm. Um, but I thought it was good. It's 300 words, but, you know, let me know. <laughs> Tweet angry comments at me. Um, I like those too. And you can find me at uh, the Pen of Joel, and thepenofjoel.com is my website. Well, it's been fantastic having you all on this podcast. Thanks, and we'll mm. see Thanks, you, sir. listeners, yeah. in two weeks. Thanks. <laughs>